Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Marshall Poe of the New Books Network. The NBN is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you'd like to support us, please go to any New Books Network website. There you can make a tax-deductible contribution. Just click the Donate to the NBN link and follow the instructions. Alternatively, you can click the Amazon link before you make your Amazon purchases. Since the NBN is a member of the Amazon Affiliates Program, Amazon pays us a small fee for referrals. Whether you can help us out or not, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the following interview. Welcome to New Books in Food. I'm your moderator, and my name is Valerie St. Brossi. Today, I'm very pleased to be speaking with Jeff Kohler about his new book, Darjeeling, The Colorful History and Precarious Fate of the World's Greatest Tea. This was published by Bloomberg USA in 2015. Welcome to New Books in Food, Jeff. Ah, Thank you. I would like to start by saying something about Darjeeling, which I hope you will expand on. Mm -hmm. Darjeeling is two things. It is a place a town in the north of India, in West Bengal, that borders with Nepal and Sikkim. So it's in the foothills of the Himalayas. And then Darjeeling is also the world's greatest tea. How did this confluence happen? Well, tea, Darjeeling was never supposed to be a place to grow tea to start with. Darjeeling was founded as a place for the East India Company soldiers to recuperate. But it is where tea found its perfect home. And it wasn't meant to be there, but when it, when it did reach those, those foothills, it absolutely found its ideal weather soil, perfect conditions to create a tea really that had never been as kind of perfect as as Darjeeling tea. And the name of the tea logically just took the name of the place. Where did it come from if it's not native? China. And the story of how we got from China to Darjeeling is, is, is really is the first part of the book. And um, you know, it's something of a blockbuster, and so it's you know, a lengthy story. But basically, the East Indian Company was making a lot of money bringing tea in out of China into into the UK, and the East Indian Company had a monopoly for a couple of centuries on this, and and they were selling millions of pounds of it, and they were really were it was the main commodity in the East Indian Company, but the Chinese were notoriously self-sufficient they didn't they didn't want those woolens from manchester or you know that many clocks or wedgwood plates 
They wanted to be paid in silver. And this became created quite a bit of a problem because the English were buying so much tea that it was draining the, the coffers back in, in London. And they needed to set up um, or needed to find something that the, the Chinese would be interested in. And they needed to, and, and that uh, is part of that story about opium and uh, growing opium and producing it in, in Bengal and India and then bring it to China and then essentially bartering the opium for tea. There was a point, though, in the opium wars when the supply of the tea was quite threatened. And at that point in the 1830s, the, the Indian Company had in the 20s, had a reason to really start looking for another source of tea. Uh, it was such a big product, and it was so important to not only the company, but to, to England. The taxes that the English were making on it were absolutely phenomenal. It was the biggest profit maker for shopkeepers also in, in England. So people were making a lot of money on it. And they were suddenly worried about the source, and they, they also wanted to be able to control every part of it every part of the production and the selling and the price. Sounds like oil. Yeah, and so they wanted everything. So when they started to look in India, and they said there must be, a, the governor general at that time said there must be a place somewhere in India from the southern tip to the Himalayas where we can grow tea. And they got uh, a message from Assam, this northeastern, far northeastern corner, that not only... Could they grow tea there? But tea was already growing. Now in China, they were growing a type of tea, what they call China leaf tea, and they they, they found that in India and Assam, it was another type of tea called well, Assamic tea. We call it now a bigger mm -hmm. leaf. Um, it's hardier. Uh, it grows lower, and the English developed this incredible industry out of Assam. And in fact, today Assam is producing about 500 million kilos of tea a year enormous industry and was very successful but Assamic tea doesn't have the quality didn't have the quality that the Chinese tea had and so the English at this point had said and we're still talking the you know the first half of the 19th century they had said great we have this industry in Assam but we want the quality also and so they sent a, a Scottish guy with a wonderful name Robert Fortune off to China to smuggle out some of the best tea plants that he could get, and also some workers to come back to India and kind of teach them how to grow tea. And Robert Fortune went off in 1848 to China, and he spent three years. And by his own estimation, he was able to get out about 20,000 plants, and it, which is not so easy to get them out, but also get them back alive to, to Calcutta. And from Calcutta, they went up to the some experimental gardens in the Himalayan foothills. And eventually, some of those reached Darjeeling. And that is, I said, that is where it found its perfect home. And so that quality of the tea that they really had wanted, you know, in the 1830s, that still were trying to fight for in 1840s, they were, were able to actually produce uh, in, in Darjeeling. This sounds like it could be a contemporary story as well. Global trade, uh, wanting, everyone wants profits going in their direction. 
what can they find that they can sell cheaply mm-hmm. as their uh, means of exchange. And uh, China, China's in the middle. They were, and they were, the English were, were very, um, if you look at the, the, the cartoons and the tabloids and that, they were quite antagonistic. It was a great rival. And they were very proud when, when India surpassed China in amount of tea that it was producing in Assam. It was, it was a very big moment in English history because um, they, they, it was one of the great rivals. And they, of course, they fought the Opium Wars with them. But by being able to surpass them uh, in, in their great Chinese tea industry was considered a, quite, quite a moment in, in English um, plant history, I guess, or commodity history. I mean, tea is, one of the, tea is one of the great um, early commodities. You know, it, it, it was crisscrossing the globe. Um, the year well, that they surpassed it, I will look up for you. Uh, and I also remember that uh, Robert Fortune's account of this uh, exciting and risky undertaking of his became a bestseller in England. Absolutely. The, you know, it, China it wasn't easy to travel. It was at that time, it was off limits, and he went in disguise. He had this, uh, he, he'd been there once before, um, which is why they, they, they tapped him to do it. He was this Scottish uh, botanist uh, from his father, was a hedger, I think. He, he was not, by any such imagination, uh, Oxbridge. He wasn't wealthy, but he was good at what he did. and. He developed one of the most important things he developed was a way to get the tea plants back to India um, in a viable condition. And he used these glass boxes that are called Wardian cases. And it mm-hmm. took him a couple of tries until he can kind of perfect his method. Um, but when he when he came back and he published a book and it was it was it was a great success. I mean, it was those are the great Victorian time period of travel travel books and the Himalayas and India and China. These were, these were, these are great topics. So in a way, uh, it was, there was a connection between exploration, uh, the exotic and a basic commodity that was becoming essential in England. And luck, um, with our dealing specifically, because it was the first superintendent of Darjeeling that planted some tea in his garden and saw that it, it worked really well. Joseph Hooker, the, one of the great English botanists who was there, he, he had said that Darjeeling was simply too high. Uh, the elevation was just too much. But when the superintendent put some in his garden and saw how well it worked, you know, within a few years, they were planting it all over. But it was very lucky that, that the whole story of how it actually ended up in Darjeeling is is like any great stories, is full of miss, near misses and, and hits. I mean, even the fact that Robert Fortune could go and was able to convince, you know, a number of Chinese tea workers to actually leave China under the threat of death and to go to India and teach them how to, to really to farm tea. I mean, it's, it's extremely... Um, was not a given when he went. He he thought that was going to be the most difficult part of his of his uh, tasks in when when he was in China, and he left it to the very end. But he was he was lucky in that, I and mean, he convinced a number of men to leave. And um, you know, India it helped the Assam industry 
certainly, and with the high quality teas, it definitely helped. It's almost like a Victorian adventure story, uh, a fictional adventure story of of um, everything hinging on um, a Chinese worker who would be uprooted forever. Yeah, there was no going back. Um, one is distance, but two, there was there was simply no going back. You immigrated, and that was it. I would like to know what makes Darjeeling the tea extraordinary. Well, there's that's a two part answer. The first part is the terroir that I kind of mentioned. Um, the right amount of rain, you know, it gets uh, 100 up to 160 inches of rain a year, but it's very steep, and so it's not it's not swampy. Uh, it's good drainage. the The soil is just the right amount of acidicness to it. Uh, it gets a lot of mountain mist. Darjeeling is covered in clouds. Um, well, almost every day there's some clouds, but it it, it gets only about 180 days or so of sunshine a year, no more than five or six hours. So you have these great fog and mist and clouds, and this protects the the little tea buds uh, growing. It's not good for them to have direct sun, you know, all, all the time. Uh, the alt at the altitude, it, they grow slowly. It allows, you know, in in the kind of the cool air, um, the buds grow slowly and it allows the flavors to develop and to concentrate. And the, the it creates aromas that tend to be far more kind of expansive and intense. Um, and it also, but, but it yields very little tea. So the average tea bush in Darjeeling is only yielding about three and a half ounces of finished tea. And that's about enough for, say, 40 cups. And they're doing about a third or so per hectare of what the average Indian in India, what the average amount is. Um, so it's, it's very little that, Typical garden is producing like something like 400 kilos or about 900 pounds per hectare, which isn't really very much. And that, that the China bushes are also smaller than, than the Islamic ones. The season is shorter. Um, so you have, on the one hand, this terroir issue. But as important is the way that it's processed. And Darjeeling tea is what they call orthodox tea. Traditionals made in the orthodox manner, and it's really changed very little in the last 150 years. It's very manual, very hands-on, and, and very nosy, and um, as they say, the leaves are withered. Um, well, they're, 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 I should go back to the plucking. It starts, I guess, with the plucking because a tea bush is plucked basically one time every week. You do a, a round through the gardens, and you come back to that bush about every six to eight days. Darjeeling tea is can only be hand-plucked because it's you're looking at the two leaves in a bud. So the, 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 the fresh two, the new two leaves and the terminal bud, that's the classic Darjeeling pluck. And it takes about 10,000 of these plucks to produce one pound of finished tea. Extremely laborious but it's, and very selective. So you're just taking those tender new shoots. This 
is taken immediately, usually twice a day. So that's all done by women. Uh, the plucking. They have these baskets that they wear on their on their back, the strap on the forehead. They put the the plucking in the baskets, and this is dumped in the. Uh, they call it a factory, but it's like a big kind of workshop in these withering lofts, and they wither, as they say, overnight. Um, and this is that means drying, right? Yeah. Well, no, withering is when they start to kind of wrinkle. They lose about oh. two thirds of the moisture. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they start to kind of wrinkle up, and this makes them pliable and ready to be rolled. So they leave them overnight. They lose two thirds of the moisture, and mm-hmm. then in the morning. Um, you can tell when they're ready to be rolled. Um, there's no machine for this. They simply take a handful of the leaves. They make a, a ball in the fist. They open the, the hand and they see how quickly or how slowly those leaves kind of spring back open. It's the only way to tell. Um, and the, but the people, again, this is very hands-on. So then it goes to a, a rolling machine. And this is the only really kind of, um, automa- automatic part of the system, but basically it imitates rolling. If you think about taking some fresh spinach leaves or something, because it's more or less what they look like, little baby spinach leaves, and you were to put them between your hand like you're rolling them, like you're warming your hands up. This is more or less what the rolling machine kind of imitates. So it, they, they, they kind of mechanically kind of gyrate and kind of twist and curl the leaves without breaking them. And what this does is it, this this initiates the process of fermentation or oxidation. And this is what's making it a black tea as opposed to a, a green tea that is not, is not fermented. And th- this process then, as it ruptures the cells and exposes you know, the, the natural juices of these leaves to the air, it begins to kind of um, take on the, the, the color and the aroma and, and the pungency that we associate with black tea. So they, after this roll, they spread them on these fermentation beds and they let them oxidize or ferment um, for anywhere from one to four hours. Depends on the temperature, depends on the humidity. Um, and again, the only way to tell when they're ready to go to the to to be fired and and to seal in that is by smelling it. Um, there's two noses, uh, as they say that the the, the aromas in the in the strain kind of goes up. And then it, it, it peaks and it drops slightly and then it goes up to a second nose and then it just falls off. And so you have to catch it at the top of the second nose, as they say. And the only way to do this is to basically take a handful of these tea leaves and to smell them. There's no, there's no mechanical way to, to do this. Um, but these people have been working for, you know, not just decades, but generations of people have been doing the, the, the same thing. But it hasn't changed. So they, they say, OK, it's, it's at its best. It goes into the oven and they fire it um, for 20 to 30 minutes um, and to seal in those flavors. And you get about a 2% final moisture content. So they're the typical brittle dry leaves. When they come out of the, out of the oven, so to speak, it's a bit like being in a bakery where a bakery has this kind of heightened sense of bread smell. Mm. Um, the, the, the factory in a tea place has this kind of heightened sense of kind of warm tea. It's kind of toasty and slightly caramelized aroma. And, um, it's, 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 it's something that I had never smelled or expected, and this was quite new when I was working on the book. Um, and it's definitely a, a wonderful sensation when you see the teas coming out of the oven. It's kind of a big 
well, they, they quite all, they tend to be fired by coal, these kind of, these kind of oven things, kind of goes on a conveyor belt through this kind of heat source. And then it's sorted, and then they start tasting it, and then the batch tasting, as they call it, in the morning, all of the teas are tasted, and then um, packaged up and sent off. So tea is a little bit like olive oil in the sense of it's it's grown and it's produced and it's it's all finished on the garden itself. You know? Also like wine. Yes. In your description, it, there were so many parallels with terroir and how the how you have to pick the leaves or the grapes at at a certain point and not too soon and not too late. There's, there's one big difference with the, with the wine, or two actually. The first one is actually picking. You are plucking leaves, as they call it, you know, from March until November. Um, and it changes a little bit every day. The leaves, you, because when you, when, when you talk about Darjeeling tea, you're talking about flushes, basically. And a flush, um, is unique to Darjeeling. It's the kind of four main seasons, and but there's no real exact date. There's kind of a daisy chain of of the of the four. And on one garden, you might have the the first flush um, just starting on the high elevation fields, and you're already into the second flush lower below them. It's it's, mm. it's, it's very it's it's not exact, but every single day the leaves are changing a little bit. And the weather, and so it makes that, that ground is shifting beneath your feet. So you're basically producing teas, you know, for hundreds of days a year, and that's why you're adjusting the fermentation process. Changes on the day. Suddenly it's cloudy or rainy. Fermentation is going to be slower. Um, you know, in in the first flush leaves in February, uh, you know, in March, and uh, coming into early April are different than the leaves are. In May and obviously in in October, the very different or in the monsoon. So this is a big difference in the sense of the complexity of the daily changes. The second is in the tasting. It's similar to wine tasting, except for it's done one every day, and two you when, when you're tasting it, you first have to look at the at the dry leaf, and then you have to you know then you smell the the, the the wet leaf um, you have to taste it when it's hot you have to taste it as it cools uh, you keep going back to it it is different types of aromas some are are, are fleeting you know some are fixed um, a hot tea is not the same as a cold tea uh, and it, it's this process that is um, it's full of routine and it's full of ritual and it's and it's there is a little bit of science behind it, and stuff, but for the most part, it's just every single day it's a little bit different, and you're you're comparing it to the previous days, and you're tasting. You know, Robert Parker does famously something like ten thousand wines a year. Some of these people are tasting, you know, twenty, thirty thousand teas in the space of a couple of months. Um, it it, it's just, it just seems like a, a a grand version of wine and a more complex mm. version of wine. Um, and this is, and it depends. There's a very difference of the one, you know, the, the gardens tend to be producing. The average garden produces 100,000 kilos of tea, um, but they tend to be kind of smallish but steep. And so there's a big difference in the tea that's plucked from the higher fields and the lower fields, or maybe one particular kind of leaf. Um, and so they're tasting. It's it's very 
um, it takes a lot of practice, I'll put it that way, to be able to gauge those nuances. Um, and as they say in the factory, we're tasting for tomorrow's tea to be able to adjust the fermentation, the rolling, the withering, to be able to make minor adjustments to keep, you know, basically you can't improve tea in, in the factory. You can only make it worse. And, and, and it's a matter That's of interesting. To, a matter of trying to pull out the best you can out of the leaves of that day. And it sounds. I'm so sorry. No, that if you over, for instance, if if the temperature when you're firing it, you know, is a little bit warm, or a little bit long, you know, it burns it a bit. But you can taste that when when, when you taste the teas after you fired them. Um, if you smell the infusion, which is what they call the, the wet leaves, you can smell kind of a tariness and they know, yes, we were, you know, a minute too long. It's very, very, very subtle and very minor. And when you line up a dozen teas, the typical, you're doing 10 or 12 of these teas tasting in the morning in the factory. They were all produced that day. I mean, it's pretty similar. And from an outsider's point of view, I mean, you, you can tell, yeah, some are better than others, but you have to know why they're better than others and how you're going to improve that. But it's pretty similar. You know, if you look at the, in the book, there's some photos of the teas that are being tasted and they look almost identical. It's not teas from across Darjeeling. I mean, it's teas from the same garden, the same morning that have been, you know, basically produced in identical conditions. And you still see them go through. It's, it's, it's very physical, the slurping, the spitting. Um, but again, this comes with years and years and years of practice of doing this every single day. The photos that you have in the book are quite breathtaking. You have photos of the gardens. You have photos of the tastings and a table with different uh, samples to be tasted. Mm-hmm. The range of color of those glasses yeah, that, is so unexpected. Well, it, it, it is because you have the first flush, you know, it starts in late February or... March, and the first flush Darjeeling tea is light and it's bright and it's fresh and it's green and in the, and in the cup, it's kind of a pale gold color, almost a greenish tint. And it's 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 a spring tea. And then as you get into the second flush in May and uh, and through June, it it warms up and the flavors get deeper and they're, and they're more roundly mellow. And it has this muscatel, which is the most famous of the attributes kind of a musky spice kind of a sweetness to it called they call muscatel Uh, and the leaves are larger but the tea becomes a little bit darker and you can see that as a kind of a copperish color almost and then comes the monsoon in july to september you have the monsoon you get 75 percent of all of the rainfall falling in just those four months and they're getting over half of the teas in 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 bulk in in yield is coming during the monsoon but they're flushing out really fast this is not quality tea. This is tea, you know, somebody said kind of slow growing, good flavors, fast growing, no flavor. It just comes out too mm. fast. And it's very difficult to, to make good monsoon teas because of the fermentation. And I always say to the people, I said, but if you really want to market to the Western audience, the monsoon is the most exotic tea you can possibly sell. But for them, it's the worst. It's the rain teas. And you can, and in the, in the cup, the colors, it's kind of a deep kind of, reddish brown it's stronger and mm. when that finishes you get in october and into november you get the autumn flush and this is a, a very short sometimes only a few weeks kind of a last kind of hurrah the bushes 
Um, and it's the most complex tea. It's kind of round and it's, it's robust and has a little kind of a sparkle to it. But, but the color is almost kind of a ruddiness. And I think this is maybe what you mean, that, that the most surprising color to see in the teacup, when you see those first flush greenish golden colors, and by November, it's this ruddy, almost burgundy color. And it's the same garden. It's the same tea. It's just a matter of months difference. That's all. It's incredible to see the changes um, that take place over the year. And so that's why if you talk about Darjeeling tea as a one thing, it doesn't really mean too much. You really, that's why you, you, you need to be talking about flushes because they're so different throughout the year. And as I said earlier, there's not a cutoff day, though. It's really depends on the weather and, and you're just coming and going. And when it just kind of this kind of daisy chain kind of, these four flushes kind of moving in one to, to each other. It sounds like the tea garden managers are expert meteorologists. They understand the climate that is, is a tool in their tea growing mm. better than any scientist could. Yeah, it's absolutely, and, and it comes into the morning tasting. This is a, one of the most fundamental parts is, is the morning tasting of your batches that day to adjust to the weather for, for the next day. And, and not just the weather, but also to the, the change in your bushes because they're changing. Again, as the weather warms up, the leaves are changing. You have to adapt to that. But the other point about these managers is that these are enormous have a lot of people management. So the, the average estate, as I said, it produces about 100,000 kilos of tea. Now, maybe I, I, I step back one second. To put some context of our drilling, India does a billion kilos of tea a year, one billion. Darjeeling itself is doing 8.5 million. Wow. So what a difference. Le less than 1%, okay? But still, it's the most famous. There's 85 gardens in Darjeeling. That's it. Okay. So they are, the average one is about 225 hectares. So that's around 550 acres. Not that mm -hmm. big. You have an average 100,000 kilos of tea a year and about 800 full time workers. But per, you got 800 workers, but you have often six to 10,000 people living on the estate. So this manager is dealing with his tea tasting, but also often six, eight, ten, twelve small villages that were actually built on the garden that he is essentially responsible for. These are the workers. Because of the workers. Their villages. Because yes. this area was very isolated. And in the very beginning, when they established them, they had to bring in the people and they established villages on the estate. These are not workers who live in a town and they commute in. They live there. So this creates, has created a very unique system um, of producing tea. Again, you have 800 workers, but you have 10,000 living on the estate. It makes, um, it makes the garden manager uh, is responsible for you know, problems for feuds. Um, there's some, you know, uh, political problems sometimes uh, between different villages. Uh, 
also responsible, knowing, for instance, the issue of, of being organic or non-organic. Two-thirds of the gardens have gone organic, but when you go organic in Darjeeling tea, you lose 40% of your yield. Now, oh, is in, that so? in theory, you can make that up uh, by higher prices, but only in Europe or North America or parts of Asia. In India, there's not one cent more for an organic tea or non-organic tea. So those markets have to be established. So you say, you should go organic. And, and a garden manager will say, you know, in, in, in my book, why go organic is one word answer market. Why not organic is an entire chapter in, in the book about one, one guy, um, his rationale of not going organic. And at the root of it is, is he says, why should I put 8,000 people that I'm essentially responsible for that live on my garden? Why should I put them, you know, at risk of their livelihood to make somebody in Europe feel better because of drinking organic tea when their lifestyle probably doesn't even follow this organic, you know, but they want organic tea because somehow it sounds better. Mm. This is one argument. And it's, it's fascinating to see because you say, well, of course you should go organic. But when you look at why not, it's for me, absolutely fascinating. Um, but this is one of the things, not only he's looking at um, tasting it or these things, but these other much larger issues uh, having to, to deal with. I, I would have thought that a tea garden in the Darjeeling would be organic just because of where it is and the tradition of farming would be uh, uh, and, and plant plantation would be traditional methods. So um, it, it surprised me when I when I saw that it was all pesticides and everything. Can you can you talk a little about that? Well, there's certain uh, funguses that um, are pretty destructive. The, even if two-thirds are organic, um, the other third use very little inputs, though. And, you know, as I think one, one, man, uh, one manager put it probably right when he said, um, we, don't, we use it only as medicine to treat the problem. They tend not to use it just to spray to spray. Mm. Uh, they tend to, if they get, you know the one the one guy who who's not who's non organic in his garden particularly you know he he buys um you know organic manures i mean he's ninety nine whatever percent organic but when he has a particular outbreak of one particular fungus or rust then he sprays you know there's there's no there's no so it's very small amount it's not it's not like um in coffee what you would call technified coffee this kind of big rows of you know, direct sun and the ground is just barren because I don't want the weeds to soak up any of it. You know, it's, it's very, um, it, it does feel quite natural. And apart from two thirds organic, you also have about 12% biodynamic, which is, which was fascinating for me because of two things. One, it's not really um, publicized. I don't think um, it's a big percentage of gardens that are biodynamic without necessarily promoting that fact. But can you is, explain the difference between biodynamic and organic? Yeah, but biodynamic was developed um by an Austrian philosopher um you know a little Love over Steiner. a century ago, uh, Rudolf Steiner. Um it's a way of your the garden is part of this 
kind of ecosystem. You, you know, it's it's organic, and that you're not using any chemicals. But it's it's beyond that. Um, it's planting by the by the lunar calendar. Um, it's uh, using certain particular kinds of well, these sprays. They tend to be in the West. The the most famous is probably the the winemakers in Oregon that are biodynamic, and they tend to call those voodoo vintners because of these certain uh. sprays that they that they use that are you know you uh, put certain things inside of a skull's uh, a, whole, a bull, uh, cow's horn and you bury it in the field and you bury it and you you spray it. But most of it, though, Steiner was very well versed in in traditional Hindu agriculture practices and developed this system. Um, based in many respects, because it's really based on the on the on the the moon. Uh, it's, it fits very well in India, um, and it it's produced. It's 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 more than a way of farming. It's almost a kind of a philosophy. It's kind of a way of of kind of believing that you know that it's. I don't think we're all explaining it here, but. A certain percentage of the garden is reversed back to forest, and this idea that you know it's only one element in this kind of uh, biodiversity, where nothing is really added to it. You should be able to use what's on the farm to kind of create your your your, your product. And um, so you're, you're farming almost uh, as a. Farming is part of the natural uh, makeup of the the area. Yeah. You're not saying, I'm making a farm, and then you tear down all the trees, and you clean the soil, and do all those things. And then you have a farm, and then you have a forest. Mm. But it's almost as though the farm and the forest are the same thing. Mm. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah, and you'd have your cows, for instance, would, would be on your farm, and you would use that manure. It just In theory, things aren't actually brought into the into the garden, into the tea gardens. Uh, it's it's completely it's certified. Um, there's a, a German. The main certifier is the German one. Uh, Marco Bari is the most famous of the Badenang farms. But Ambutia and the whole Ambutia group. There's about eleven, ten, eleven, twelve gardens. They're all biodynamic. They follow this this process of farming. Um, the, the problem with biodynamic farming is that it's kind of easily mocked. For these preparations, there's a number of these preparations of the of the of the cow's horn, and there's some crystal, silicon crystals that are kind of sprayed and stuff. But it's it's just a very very natural way of living. You know, like one of the dynamic farmers said to me, I mean, this is something that we put in our body, you know, and you have to be aware of that. And it's a way of looking. The argument is always, well, does it taste better? But that's almost Beyond the, that's almost not the point. Mm. The, the tea tastes very good because the gardens that are dynamically farmed tend to be treated very well. And you go to them, and they're full of spiders and birds, and they feel really natural. And people tend to take quite good care of them. If the tea has more flavor because it's plucked in the full moon, some would argue yes. I mean, a, a, a big part of the plant is moisture, and it's this this idea that. During the the full moon, the moisture kind of rises up, and you can when you pluck the tea leaves at that moment, it has more than if you were to pluck it at a um, 
you know, at the opposite is they say when there's no moon, you should be harvesting your potatoes, or your carrots, because mm. it's, it's going the other direction. It's almost uh, scientific uh, principles versus um, traditional uh, human knowledge of farming. And, in a way, and it use it well. The soil is absolutely fundamental, and the worms, and you know, it's creating. It's extremely natural. It's basically a, a, a step beyond organic farming. I'm better that way. I mean, it's the easiest way to to say it. But it's it's quite unique in the quantity of tea that is being biodynamically farmed. And the tea in the beginning of the book, uh, the the it starts with a story about the world record that was taken by one garden called Makabari for tea um, at auction. And this is, this is biodynamic tea. And so for all the biodynamic farmers out there in Germany and Europe is the most um, famous and Japan has definitely some um, India's is there's a fair industry of it. Of all of the success stories, I think that the Makabari tea from Darjeeling is, is the biggest. I mean, I, I don't, Holds the world record. It's by far the most famous of the of the tea farms there. I w- I would like to ask you a question that relates to the um, the drying machine or the baking machine. Mm-hmm. I I'm curious to know what temperature uh, the leaves are dried at. Is it a very high temperature or low temperature? Mm, no, the average is about 240 degrees. And that's Fahrenheit? Yeah. Not for Celsius. Fahrenheit for yeah. 20 to 30 minutes. So it's a it's a, a slow oven, I'd say, going back to the, the yeah. baking analogy. Yeah, it's basically a big, it looks, it's a big, the kind of large, kind of rectangular, and it has a like kind of a conveyor belt. That kind of kind of zigzags through it, and you you they dump the um, the tea into the top, and then it kind of comes out at the bottom twenty minutes later, basically <laughs> kind of runs through slowly in this oven two forty some days two thirty eight two forty two depends but two forty is more or less Fahrenheit is more or less the the temperature that's interesting uh to know that because uh when I would toast w- Nuts in an oven, mm. and now a nut is a it's a fresh nut, a, mm-hmm. a, 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 a raw nut, say a walnut. I would put it in about a two forty or a two fifty oven, mm. and I'd leave it there for about half an hour, maybe twenty twenty five minutes, to change the nut enough so its flavor is enhanced, but it really doesn't brown. Mm. Yeah, it's the same idea with this. What you're trying to really do is to seal in those flavors and give it a kind of nice, mm. nice kind of toasty taste. You don't want any bitterness, obviously. Um, you just want it slightly brittle and like 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 a good nut, a little bit kind of caramely flavor almost. You know, almost kind of a kind of a sweetness comes out from the oven, but you definitely don't want you don't want it beyond that. It it sounds like. Temperature and the potential in the in the leaf is something that we ha- that we as ordinary tea drinkers have no notion of. No, and you know one of the things about 
what why I guess you call ordinary tea or tea bags. A lot of the tea bags, you know, there, there's different there's different levels of tea when you're sorting it. You have basically whole leaf, broken leaf, fannings, which are a little bit smaller, and dust. And in Darjeeling tends to they try to get sixty to seventy percent leaf grade tea because it's a it's a premium tea. But dust is what literally what they sweep up off the floor. And this is what makes up those cheap tea bags. I mean, you know, that that you can get good tea bags now. They don't call them tea bags, they call them what sachets or mm-hmm. things. Very high quality teas for sure. But the worst tea is is that dusty stuff that I mean when when I went the first time, I was able to go to see all four of those flushes. I, I had three kind of lengthy trips and um, saw you know the whole process. And the first flush I went, and they were sweeping the floor, and he's like, yeah, that's you know, there's your tea bag. You know, <laughs> you think and, really? And- I mean, it, it's it's amazing how much good tea or how much bad tea there is out there in the sense of what when you start you know when when you see it made and you see the good stuff going off and then you see everything else i mean it it makes you think buying it about buying higher you know better quality leaf grade tea specifically yes indeed so that dust is that across the board it's twinings Teas that are Twinings Darjeeling tea bags that are sold in the UK. Well, that's the, the same um, dust. Uh, I mean, dust is a category. It's mm-hmm. a, and if you go to the auction, you know, dust is a they, they're selling dust. Most of the tea though you're drinking is CTC cut tear curl. It's a different process than Orthodox tea. Orthodox tea you tend to get these kind of whole leaf things. CTC all the Assam tea, most of the Assam tea is. CTC, CTC and it's it's they basically the machine that kind of chops it up and it quickens the fermentation process and it makes kind of a stronger brisker cup of tea it makes kind of hard little pebbles yeah um, you can get excellent CTC tea but um, it, it does these little kind of pebbly things the dusty stuff I would I would tend to stay away from um, you know it even even at its most expensive almost when you break down the price of a cup of tea, it's a lot cheaper than a can of Coke or Red Bull. Mm. What an interesting uh, I mean, comparison. You, I mean, you, you don't need very much tea. And even you're buying the best. And, and I would always say to get kind of small amounts. I mean, you're using, you know, for one cup of tea, um, one level teaspoon. And that's about a twelfth of an ounce, about 2.5 grams. Mm. I mean, is is not very much, and and if you know, if you buy a hundred grams of, or you know, fifty grams of very expensive Darjeeling tea, you know, and and you're making you know, twenty cups out of it. I mean, you break down the the price; it's definitely cheaper than price per cup than any soda. So I'm a consumer, and I'm walking into um, a store that sells loose leaf. In nice canisters. Mm-hmm. What should I buy if I want to buy Darjeeling? Well, the first thing is buy by the flush. Now, when we talk about Darjeeling tea, as I said, first we, we, we talk about flushes, but we're talking mm-hmm. about single estates here. Darjeeling tea is like wines in that. You know, it's, 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 it's a premium tea. It's the, it's the champagne of tea, and it's known for single estates. 
unblended, unflavored. You're going to, you know, it's, it's bright. Um, they often compare it to kind of the, the shine of a, of a newly minted coin or something. This, mm. is, this is not tea to make chai with. This is not tea to put milk or sugar or lemon. Uh, it has a natural sweetness, so the lemon you don't need. Milk is going to wash away those flavors. This is a tea to be drunk just as it is. You know, it, it has a very delicate, complex flavors, you know, flowery, as I write in the book, kind of more stem than petal. There's some, that muscatel hint is apricots and peaches and some kind of toasty nuts with some of them. These are real, quite subtle, natural flavors. So when, you, when you're buying it, you want, by the flush, I, I, I'm a big fan of first flush, um, personally, but because you're, you, you're not, you're, you want a good CTC if you're going to make that try. Mm-hmm. But with Darjeeling tea, you want, Darjeeling tea, you know, it, it, it's soft-spoken. You know, it's, it's not brash. It, it, it's not, it doesn't have that broke, you know, I, I write in the book, kind of broke flamboyance of, of a chai. You know, it's kind mm-hmm. of contemplative. It, it's not really energetic. It's, it's just, it's quiet. And when you're, you, when you're buying it, you want to look in the loose leaf in the tin. You want to find out, you know, which flush and you want to find out which garden. Um, and trust the advice of your, if it's a good tea store, trust the advice of the tea store. But you, you can smell it. Sometimes people, they take a small handful and they kind of, they put it in their fist and they kind of exhale, they get a little bit of um, humidity on it and then they kind of mm-hmm. smell, and then they kind of smell it. I don't think mm-hmm. tea stores encourage that personally, but um, that's what some people in the gardens do um, mm-hmm. to kind of warm it up a little bit. Um, and get a small amount, the smallest that they'll sell you. Uh, and you know, when you make it, as I said, one level teaspoon, the water, it, you know, it's 90 degrees Celsius. So, you know, not boiling and you're steeping it only for three minutes, three and a half minutes. Um, you don't oversteep it cause you're going to get that, that bitterness. So you, you get one by, by a state, by flush, small amount. You, you, you start making a few cups, you see how you like it. You try a different one. Um, the better stores, you know, the, the first flushes uh, will be arriving very soon. They tend to air freight them in. Um, there's great excitement in that. And then the second flushes tend to come kind of later in summertime. And, and by then, I would get the second flush and see how you like it, a different garden, um, and experiment. But it's fundamental that, that, that one doesn't add milk or sugar to it. I mean, you obviously we can, but I think there's better teas to make a nice English cup of milky tea so we're not drinking a cup of english tea we're drinking a a cup of tea that is like a glass of wine you don't pour milk and sugar and lemon into a glass of wine exactly i mean mean, wine stands on its own you can have this great single malt you know whiskeys but you're not going to add a mixer to them you can but there's Mm. no point Especially with the milk idea, it really a good a good Darjeeling that's not oversteep because if you're going to add milk, you got to steep it a bit longer, a bit sugar. It's it's subtle and th- that those, you know, you said earlier that it's very surprising to see how the colors in the cup change. I mean, for me, it's very surprising also to to, to sip a cup of tea of Darjeeling and say, you know, think. I taste apricots, but it, it's completely not, there, there's nothing added to it. It's just 
these dried tea leaves and these really interesting fruity flavors can come through, you know, with, with nothing added to that. You know, this doesn't surprise me what you're saying because true cinnamon, which is cinnamon, uh, cinnamonium salonicum, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, is a bark of a tree. When you use that in cooking, uh, in curries or other things, it smells fruity. Mm. Well, it's the same. And way, you can't believe it. It's this. I mean, so many things have a fruitiness. I mean, it's surprising. Um, some of the coffees you get at certain Ethiopian coffees, particularly, you think, how is it possible to get those fruity flavors are coming through in in a, a cup of coffee? But again, to get those fruity flavors in coffee, you can't be making espresso or cappuccino. This is mm-hmm. there's a right way to extract you know, a cup of coffee and to be able to taste that naturalness. And basically it's, it's trusting um, the tea and just, you know, three minutes, I mean, or three and a half. I mean, when, when you, when you test in India or anywhere, it's, it's five minutes. There's a set number of time because it's across the board because it's all about consistency and you know many tea managers they always test in the in the in the factory at 5 minutes and then we go back to their bungalow and we sit on the terrace and they're steeping the tea for two and a half minutes or 3 minutes i mean it's a different to drink it and just allow that those flavors to kind of come forth um it, it, you you don't want old tea i mean especially the first flush teas first flush teas in my experience tend to hold their flavors the least amount of time um, they'll tell you, I don't know, maybe two years, but really six months, nine months, 10 months, I think is, is, is no problem holding its maximum, you know, flavor, but then they start to kind of dissipate, but I don't see that as an issue. It's like saffron. I mean, you just buy the smallest amount you can use it and then get more. There's no point in buying two pounds of Darjeeling tea, especially because it's so interesting to taste the different gardens. So you have 85 gardens and you can probably, you know, at a good tea store, you can buy a couple or five or 10 or, or a dozen of those different gardens. It's really interesting to taste different gardens and different flushes. It's very, you know, many people like better second flush because it has what makes Darjeeling tea famous, the, the muscatel flavor um, and a certain amount of body. Uh, it's, it's bolder. It's more forward. I like that bringing us that lightness to the first flush personally. But part of that, I think for me is tied up in my first trip for the book. I've been there doing before, but when I went back to the book and I actually spent time on tea gardens um, was during the first flush. And that's really where I fell in love with um, that and where I discovered, you know, the smell of freshly toasted tea. And this is all during the first flush. So I, I can't really, I don't think, fully untangle my, my emotional experience with first flush and my, and my palate. But um, the autumn flush is the one that is perhaps the most interesting. And there's a lovely irony in, for Indian buyers particularly because um, the autumn flush, as I said, very short, but it's, it's a very, very good tea. It's very complex. But most of the European and North American markets and Asian markets to an extent are they're done buying for the year. Christmas is nearby. And so it tends 
to be very, very difficult to find outside of India. And really? many, many of the main, of the key tea figures that, that I dealt with, they all said the same thing. And my, my favorite is, is Autumn, that don't say anything. <laughs> right. You know, because it's, it's very small, but it's, it's this interesting, you know, it's kind of ruddy copper color to that kind of burgundy, as I said. It's, it's kind of robust. It, it, and and there's, there's also, it's not the cheapest because on the market itself in India, last year, for instance, it was the highest selling one on the, on the, in, the, in the auction because there's a little bit of um, the first flush is some excitement because it's the first tease. But there's a similar kind of excitement among certain buyers the, of the year's last great tease. And so when a really good autumn flush comes on the market, it goes for a lot of money. Well, we have to be educated consumers when it comes to Darjeeling, then. That's a very clear message. And uh, not look for things that come with screw tops. Well, I mean, the, the, the big problem is that most of the, it's just this generic Darjeeling tea, which doesn't really mean too much. It means some things. I mean, it's a step. But it's like saying, you know, I guess French wine or Italian wine. Okay, that's a start, but there's a mm-hmm. huge difference in a, in, in a wine produced in Sicily than in a wine produced in, you know, other regions. It's, it's, so you, you, one needs to, I guess, go to the right tea store or online. There's some great, great places to be able to buy online and, and to be able to just choose first flush, second flush, you know, autumn flush, and then choose a garden and, um, also, I mean, for sure, the generic Darjeeling teas are largely monsoon flush, which is considered the lowest quality. Mm-hmm. Or else this is what's being blended in. If you're buying by flush or by estate, you're, you're going to get a good tea, I, in my opinion, almost every time. You may like this one more than that one, but if it's being sold specifically by estate and flush, you, you're, you're, you're going to get a good product. But- are the online um, sources for good Darjeeling uh, located in India or they're located in the West? Mm, some of both, I think. Some have mm-hmm. started um, in India or by Indians, and they tend to, you know, the biggest market, they'll, they'll say to me, you know, we have, you know, our clients are divided between the United States and Japan and Australia or Denmark or, you know, they're very specific. Um, many of these have quite close ties to the tea industry in, in Darjeeling. Again, it's very, there's a very limited amount. Um, mm-hmm. you know, 8.5 million kilos of tea isn't very much. And half of that, you know, is monsoon flush. You know, you're, you're looking at, I want to say, 15% maybe is first flush. So, I mean, it's a 10 very much, very really, for a global demand. One so of the you, you, of Darjeeling is that most of the market Darjeeling tea is export. The Indian palate and the Indian market um, tends to like stronger teas, and traditionally because of the cost. Money is no longer an issue with that in India. Uh, tradition and palate, perhaps because the, the stronger flavors. So they, they've always had this disadvantage of having to export everything. So 60, 70% of the Darjeeling tea is exported. Mm. So uh, would you say it's equally good sources would be the online sources and a very uh, fine 
tea selling I mean, if you have an establishment. Tea, if you have a, uh, a tea store that you can go to, I will go there first, certainly. Mm-hmm. Look at the teas, smell the teas. Um, if you don't have access to that, then I would, I would look online. Um, but for sure, I will go to the local tea store first and ask questions, and they should be able to explain to you also you know the differences i said the first flush um the first flush stuff is 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 coming on now i mean it's it's going on right now it should be arriving so now is end of march beginning of april yes so the first flush it's out there it should be the better tea store should have it in um in Paris, the one particular famous one, they do a very big thing. It's almost like a bijoulet when they oh, yeah. they advertise when the first flush comes. It's it's exciting. Um, you should look at the date on the tea also. Again, you want to buy this year's tea or if it depends on the time of year, I guess, or last year's, but you don't want tea that's too old. Again, small amounts. I mean, for me, this is the most fundamental part. Is Even when I buy teas, um, uh, I tend to buy the smallest, but I tend to get a couple different ones and then taste them, and, and next time I get other ones. Is it so fascinating how teas change? I mean, I've I've been in even one garden, the difference of teas from one part of the garden to the other is, is fascinating, and that same garden one week to the next, much well, less one garden to a different garden. This is the antithesis of the industrial product which must always be the same, no matter where it's manufactured, no matter uh, where it's sold, it always has to be the same taste, the same size, the same color. It is, and, it, and it, that has made it really complex to market and to sell. You know, the, people within the industry will say, gee, it's too complex. Four flushes? I mean, it's too complex. Just give us one product. It's, it's so different, and it changes so much that it makes it, a little bit intimidating for many people, even tea drinkers, to kind of approach. And it, and it shouldn't. And I was going on and on about don't, don't add milk. I mean, but, mm-hmm. but it's just because I feel that, not I'm being that particular, I love a good milky tea. I just think there's better teas for a good milky tea, um, as opposed to Rajita, because I think that you're not, that's not really the point. As I said, you, you don't need that great single malt, you know, whiskey to do whatever you 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 get a different drink if you're going to add make a nice cocktail or 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 blend it but it's it can be very intimidating i mean even my wife um she knows you know it for her um she finds it still almost overwhelming in the choices okay i have an unusually high number of dodging teas at home but Uh um, you can imagine but still you know she's always saying just Make me a cup. I mean, you know, it, 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 well, well, you feel like first flush, second flush, you know, what, what, you know, you want this valley, uh, just, just make me a cup. So for a consumer, this can be overwhelming and you would hate to see it, though, kind of dumbed down or simplified down too much because what makes Darjeeling so special is exactly this point, this, these, these flushes, this so closely related to the land and to the seasonal change. I mean, I can't think of another product that changes so much and is harvested day by day with such, you know, differences. Um, I'm sure there's something similar, but I haven't come across it. 
to, to see this. And this is what was so fascinating to see working on the book, um, being able to see the, the, the land change and, the, and the, the bushes change and to see that tea change both in color and in taste, you know, from March until November. It was absolutely fascinating. And to see how that little shifting of the weather every day makes a difference in your, your cup of tea. I, I, I would have never imagined that. There was a quotation uh, from the manager of Glenburn uh, Tea Garden. He said that tea planting is unrivaled in scope for creativity. Mm. It is endless. What you have been describing is an endlessly fascinating natural product. Mm. And would would you not say that uh, going to a tea tasting held in a, a tea shop or there are people who are now giving tea tasting classes or uh, workshops and to have someone actually make these cups for you and taste them first under someone's guidance might be the best first step. Mm, certainly. I know a lot of tea stores have that on Saturdays or someday they do these yeah. kind of tasting. It's definitely a good um, first step. Uh, definitely. But it's, you can also, in fact, it's affordable enough where I think you can also get a couple of teas or just taste it and kind of remember and then get next time and just kind of start. I mean, if it's 50 grams, I mean, it's, it's not, you, you make some cups and you, you know, you That's get right. something else, but it, it's definitely, it is accessible, even though it seems at first moment, it's kind of an intimidating because there seems to be a lot of options. Most good tea stores will only have even a good tea store, say, one or two first flushes or, you know, um, unless it's a really big one, you know, then mm-hmm. like Mariage Fraise in Paris or something like mm-hmm. that. A good neighborhood tea store, I think, is a perfect place because you, you'll, be semi, you'll, be, you'll be quite limited in your options. And then you, you start with those. And then um, and the better tea people should be able to tell you, you know, you say, I kind of like this kind of flavor to be kind of guide you that way. Depends on your mood. Um, it's not so much like wine that, you know, I tend to go to my wine store below me here in Barcelona and I say to the guy, oh, tonight I'm having this. And he says, well, this or this maybe. Mm-hmm. Tea, you tend to drink alone. So it tends to be less. Um, it doesn't depend so much on what you're eating at the same time, no? Yeah. Um, and you can drink this, you know, many of these teas you can drink all day long almost. You could, you know. Yes, the way the Chinese. Because it's not it's not heavy. Again, you know, I love a good chai, a good milky chai full of ginger and sugar and a bit of black pepper. Mm-hmm. I love that. And then I'm in the, many days I'm in a mood for that. But um, you can only have so much of that every day. But Darjeeling tea, I find I can kind of sip. I tend to make a number of cups every day and I, I, I never finish any of them. They sit on my desk and I, I sip them a bit. And then, mm-hmm. But I, I find that an, a cool Darjeeling tea... Is partic- can be particularly nice because the fruitiness tends to kind of concentrate and come out. There's certain ones that you get those apricots and that kind of peachy flavor. And when it cools, I find kind of not 
paying so much attention, you kind of take a drink and it's a little bit cool and, and, mm-hmm. and you're working at your desk and, and suddenly the first moment is like, oh, the tea's cold, but then you, you get that, those fruity flavors and it's really um, pleasing. Well, that sounds like a, a wonderful approach to a tea that you make hot and yet it's there as a beverage for you all day or until you finish the cup and its flavor continues to reward. It continues to evolve and, and tea, you know, it, I love that process actually making loose leaf tea um, and tea, few things I think are as interactive or as reactive, you know, as tea when you, when you put the, a little teaspoon of tea in the, in the pot or in the, in the cup or whatever and you pour that water over the top immediately begins to come alive and evolve and those first aromas that first aroma when the when the water hits the tea leaves kind of like it's really dry and then it rains there's a certain immediate aroma that kind of precedes the rain and there's a certain aroma that kind of comes up out of the teacup that first aroma that i always found particularly nice um and just watching it again. If you're gonna make the tea, you know it can't be in one of those tiny little balls. You know that the leaves need room to kind of yes, move indeed, around tea and, ball, and right. stretch and to kind of grow. Um, it's best in like a, a, a warm teapot or, or a cup um, or those big kind of large size. Um, what do you call them? I don't know, filter, but that you can put in the cup. But they had plenty of room for them to grow. And, and for me, it's. Definitely part of the pleasure in in the tea is actually making it and seeing seeing the the tea kind of change and as the leaves kind of open up a bit and so the steeping of the Darjeeling is something that you it rewards you if you let it take place properly mm, absolutely and there is you know one of the arguments I make in the book is that I feel like that. There's a great romance to Darjeeling and Darjeeling tea, not not in this colonial aspect of the of the hills, but a, a, a romance of this true artisanal people that are making tea that that is, is so laborious that it's you know barely surviving, so to speak. Would you like to speak more? I'm so sorry. Changing every single day, and and even when you're making that cup of tea and you kind of undo um, your your tea tin there's a there's a distinct smell of the tea and there's a one planter in, in glenburn the same man that you quoted a minute ago says you know he says this is this is a glenburn tea this is glenburn in a cup because it's very specific mm-hmm. to that garden because it's all of these things we're talking about are completely tied to the, the earth and the soil and the, and the and the weather of that particular garden it's and, magic and it, and, it, and it comes through, absolutely, and it comes through in the cup. Please tell us about the labor uh, issues in Darjeeling, Jeff. Well, having a, a major problem in Darjeeling right now with the labor issue, that absenteeism has risen in the space of just a couple of years to about 40%. It's extremely problematic for the gardens because if you can't, no matter how good of teas you're making, you can't get the leaves off the bush. It's completely irrelevant. And, you know, the, the manager will say to you, we know why they're not coming. We know where they're going, but we don't really know what to do about it. 
And it's part of this kind of global issue. And one is education. Um, the past generations from these estates were largely uneducated or even illiterate. And education has become a major priority in India and no less so in, in Darjeeling on the estates. And many of the managers are very proud of the fact that they actually have English medium schools on their garden. The second is TV. Um, but it's given them exposure to the kind of outside world. And again, before, very isolated. Many of the generations saw very little outside of the garden. But now with TV and the Internet and stuff, they see, they glimpse the outside world. And they compare themselves. And they say, we want more. So when you combine education and TV, you get, as, you get higher aspirations. And basically, the kids want to go further than their parents. But even more important that I saw, which is really surprising for me, is that the parents, they want their kids to go further. They don't want their kids to pluck tea anymore. And this, this is something that you, you work on an estate and you inherit a position on the garden, generally. So if your mother was a tea plucker, in your family, you get one position, you inherit one position on the estate. Sometimes I met people that sold that inherited position, invest that money in education or a private school in the town, and basically a way of, you know, it's like burning your ships at the shore. I mean, there's really no going back then. And it's a way of forcing that next generation uh, of not being a tea plucker or working on a tea garden. So this is one of the major issues that is being dealt with in the gardens, combined with in the environment, this climate changes are being particularly felt up there. Um, the, the monsoons are stronger uh, and less predictable, but often shorter. And they come late and there's droughts this year, like every year these days, as the season begins with the drought. Temperatures have gone up. Hail comes and just wipe out an entire harvest in 20 minutes. Um, soil erosion, the landslides and landslips from the massive rain that is just being condensed into a short amount of time. And then the third issue they're dealing with is a political issue because the ethnic Gorkas, the people who live there, this area was quite unpopulated. There wasn't so many people. And the British brought in ethnic Gorkas from Nepal to work on the tea gardens. And these people um, are fighting for their own state within West Beng uh, within India. They want to be separate from West Bengal. So Calcutta is the capital, and that's you know 400 miles away. They find themselves linguistically, culturally apart, um, socially apart, and and one and distinct, and want to have their own state. So that this creates in the year of the book that I follow, there was a general strike about a month long. Um, during the season because of this political issue. So and these, what year was that? Was that 2013? Uh, 2013, yeah. yeah. But they, they have on and off uh, problems. The moment it's, it seems okay. But these three issues, you know, are part of the – are issues that the, that, that, that the gardens are dealing with. Labor, you know, the environment is difficult on a small scale to, to do much about. Um, the labor issue, though, this, as I said, they, they, the managers, they, they know why they're leaving. It's, it's not any mystery. 
how you can get them to stay or to come back. This is a big, this is a big, um, big dilemma. And it seems to be, I write about this, you know, in the book at the end, what they're going to do, it's just not about raising the salary, you know, another dollar a day. Cause it's, it's just beyond that. It's, it's this global movement away from laborious agricultural work. People want to have a middle-class life, an apartment, and they want to live in Delhi or, or wherever. You, you, you can't stop that by simply raising a little bit. And, and it's probably going to be much more fundamental changes in the structure of the tea garden. Um, not, not easy because you have 85 of these gardens, you know, that, that have to kind of agree. But somehow, you know, do something substantial. Um, I quote one manager, one one owner actually saying, "We can't be arguing about pennies when pounds are at stake here. Mm. That it, it has to be something big." And you know, in the middle of this, obviously, are the are the workers. Um, but the future um, is, I think, good, optimistic, uh, because of the product that it that it makes. It's it's really very unique. This tea, if you take a tea bush from Darjeeling and you plant it in the south of India, you get a South Indian tea. You don't get a, a Darjeeling tea. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very specific. And one of the unique things that, that nowhere else can replicate for sure is they have a certain crisping effect, they call it, where you have these enormously high you know, Himalayan peaks just above the gardens. And the wind blows off the ice, off the glaciers, and, and, it, and it creates a kind of a dryness to the air, kind of crispiness. And this is all part of the flavor, they say. Um, you know, Darjeeling tea, it's, it's, it's only from Darjeeling. And this is something that they have that, that other places do not have. And as long as they keep making great teas, which they are, you know, now there's, you know, the soil's better with your, you know, it, they're making different options of teas. They're making incredible oolongs because they have these raw materials that are absolutely unparalleled. They're making very good green teas and very, for the Indian market specifically and very good oolongs. Now, there's a learning curve there, but in a decade or so, when they really master making oolongs, I think they're going to be absolutely um, something to deal with on the, on the market. They've won some uh, major award recently uh, of white teas, for instance, which was always a a type of tea dominated by uh, the, the Chinese. Um, the Darjeeling has won a couple of awards on the major tea fairs. This is very, very significant, I think. Again, it's the raw materials they have. Do you think that China may become a customer for Darjeeling teas? Sure. The, the Chinese have already started to buy um, Japanese, for sure, uh, Korea. They... they it's it's an elite product and it's a limited product and it's a very good gifting product, for instance, um, because of its uniqueness and its specialness. Um, and it's it's good and the Chinese obviously appreciate good good teas. Well, then perhaps what we should do is end on this very unusual note, which is a product that left China, was taken from China, became a huge commodity elsewhere, 
may with time be returning to China as a consumer product for the Chinese. Mm. And I would like to end your wonderful interview on this optimistic mm. note and say once again that the book Darjeeling, The Colorful History and Precarious Fate of the World's Greatest Tea, was written by today's author, Jeff Kohler, published by Bloomsbury USA in 2015. We are awaiting news of the IACP Award for which this book has been nominated May of April 3rd is the date mm. and we wish you all the best luck oh thank you i want to thank you so much for giving us an ample more than an ample a sec a first flush second flush <laughs> amount of your time and i want to thank the listeners tuning in to new books in food thank well, you oh my pleasure it's such a pleasure to talk about because i feel like it's something that is so unknown still and that i said that that it's its story is still trapped in the hills and one happy to get out its story as much as possible yes indeed and we thank you so much for this extraordinary book thank you and goodbye <laughs>